I'm Denise. I'm the Scottish one. And she's a non-fiction editor. And I'm Louise, the English one. And she's a fiction editor. And together, we're the Editing Podcast. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Editing Podcast. Hello. So we're delighted to welcome a friend from over the pond, Tim Storm. Welcome, Tim. It's lovely to have you here with us. Tell us about what you do and where you're from. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I am, first of all, a big fan of the editing podcast. Oh, thank Um, you. (laughs) But I'm also a writer, teacher, and editor. Um, I work mostly with fiction these days, but I've done a lot of teaching and editing of personal essays, and I've edited some textbooks and the occasional academic paper. Um, And I hail from Madison, Wisconsin, which is a Mm mid-sized city about two and a half hours drive northwest of Chicago. All right, northwest of Chicago. That means it must be cold there now, surely. It is. <laughs> Colder than we've got really? here. Really? Yeah. 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 Tim, Sorry. you've kindly agreed to come on and talk to us about the concept of editing unearned writing, which I have to confess is something that I wasn't familiar with. Yeah, and Tim, when I first heard you use that term, I didn't I didn't get it either, Um, even though I'm a fiction editor, but... I think essentially we're talking about plausibility, though I really like your way of expressing it because it feels like it asks a little bit more from a writer, a sort of responsibility, if you like. So tell us more. Yeah, I really like that word responsibility for this because um, there's this sense that we owe it to readers to get this right. I would explain the concept of earning as um, having to do with story events for fiction has to do with story events and character reactions. And for nonfiction has to do with ideas and arguments. And earning is really just a matter of feeling natural and logical and consistent with those story events, reactions, arguments. And this isn't to say that you can't surprise us. It just means that there needs to be a sort of retrospective plausibility. Like when we look back at the story uh, prior to the moment in question, the event or reaction should feel almost inevitable. Mm. Mm, Right. That makes sense. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's really it really is a matter of plausibility, but it's also it's causality and logic. And mm-hmm. and I like to make this subtle distinction between an event or reaction being logical and coming about logically. Because right. yeah. even if a character is irrational or illogical, and they often are because that's kind of true to human nature, right? Readers mm-hmm. need to see where that's coming from. Mm. Yep. And um, if I may put a finer point on it, plausibility is a concern here, but this is also about authenticity. Um, I think it was W.H. Auden who said something about how writers worry too much about originality when it's really authenticity they should be worried about. Mm, Right. Yeah, that's a good one. And what's fun about this is that nonfiction and fiction, uh, what they have in common is truth. They're both, they're different approaches to truth and to conveying the truth, but they are both after truth. And if a writer can't create a story event or character reaction or argument or explanation that arises out of the words that precede that moment in the piece of writing, then it won't feel true. It won't feel authentic. And that's why there's really a responsibility to get this right. That makes a lot of sense. It's, it's, um, I think you've articulated that really well, Tim. Uh, yeah, um, really good. Yeah, because just following the, the logic of what you were saying can see absolutely how that fits both in 
fiction and in non-fiction. Um, and I know that we're going to chat a little bit about this in non-fiction a bit later, but let, let's just stick with the fiction for now. When you're editing, are there particular types of this unearned writing that you tend to see more often? Yeah, and it would be really helpful if perhaps you could give us an example with each, either from books or TV or films, so that listeners can really get their heads around this, this issue of plausibility and responsibility. Sure. Yeah, there are a few types I see often. Uh, the first and most common, I would say, is probably about salvation events. Those mm. are moments in the story when a character gets out of trouble. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is like the classic deus ex machina, um, which... <laughs> For any listeners who may or, or maybe aren't familiar with it, it means God from the machine. And it harkens back to like Greek theater when the hero would be in trouble and it would seem that all was hopeless in the end. And then a God would suddenly appear on the stage, usually lowered from some sort of contraption or machine, and then uh -huh. would save this hero and all would end happily. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. But th I think they recognized even then that this was lazy writing. It is. It's uh, a bit of a cop out, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And for me, one of my favorite examples is from Jurassic Park, um, right. the film. Um, it's been so long since I've read the book. I don't remember if the book does this, but in the film, yeah. we've got the protagonists, Alan, Ellie, Lex, and Timmy, and they're all running away from velociraptors. And they end up in like the lobby, I think, of the welcome center at Jurassic Park surrounded by three velociraptors and all seems hopeless but then a t-rex which up until this point in the film every time a t-rex has appeared like the earth shakes right but <laughs> now like out of nowhere this t-rex appears and decides to pick a fight exclusively with the velociraptors and nice. allows the humans yeah. to run out of the lobby and then they, they hitch a ride on a Jeep that very conveniently shows up right at that moment. Those Jeeps, they just uh, do that, don't they? Those Jeeps, yes. <laughs> that was a T-Rex obviously tiptoeing at that point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the crux of the problem here really has to do with the salvation doesn't arise from a character choice in any way. It's just random good luck. Yeah, and, and that's... That can be sort of frustrating, can't it? I, I do remember that scene, um, and it does feel like I said, it does feel like the writers have kind of just copped out a little bit. Um, and maybe maybe you can get away with that in a Hollywood blockbuster, but I don't think it's the best approach for a writer who's trying to gain trust with their audience, especially perhaps if it's their first book. Yeah, Would you absolutely. say the same? Yeah, exactly. And then the other thing is, I was just looking up that uh, Jurassic Park. The film came out in 93 and the book came out in 90. Mm -hmm. So it's it's 30 years old. And, mm. you know, I think writers nowadays, it really like publishing is a tougher landscape. And I don't think you I think you need you can't afford to have something that's not really high quality. You know, yeah, there's too yeah. much competition in the market. Yeah. isn't there? Exactly. I mean, it's not just, um, you know, even for people who are, who are going it alone and doing their own self-publishing, there's they're competing with each other. But there's also some uh, just a, so, so much advice and guidance on how to get this stuff right. And so many books out there and that highlight what, you know, this the kind of teaching that's available that highlights these kind of problems that I think readers are a bit more savvy than they than they used to be. 
Yeah, yeah, I was about to say, I think readers expect, expect more. They're, I think they're more discerning perhaps now because it's so easy to put a book to one side if if you're not um, convinced by it. Mm. I think people are much more likely just to put it down and, and move on to something else. That's a really good point, Denise, actually, because you mm-hmm. think about like, you know, if you've got a load of books on your Kindle or your or your iPad or whatever, it's just too easy to click away from it whereas yeah. you know it, it might it, that's not quite the same situation as if you're if you're sitting um on your couch or whatever and and you've actually got your paperback in front of you so many people are using digital devices now that it's mm. it's dead easy if you're bored just to go elsewhere but yeah. you know i i would say even i know this is getting off the point slightly but it's it's not even just the fact that it's digital I have got so many amazing books sitting waiting to be read that I'm not going to waste time on a rubbish one or or work hard to make a book believable if if I don't feel that it is so um, even with you know hard copy books I'm much more inclined nowadays than I ever was before to put something to one side if it's not holding me and convincing me of the story yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the that's part of the argument here is that earning events is really about sort of gaining and holding the reader's trust. Right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. There's the, another type I see often is um, about character realizations. Uh, it's that moment in a romance, like when the character realizes she loves and is sort of subconsciously always loved her college classmate. Um <laughs> Or it's like even a simpler sort of scene level realization, someone realizing suddenly that everyone around her is looking at her for answers or or even just someone realizing that they're lost, either literally or figuratively. Um, a realization is is a reevaluation of a notion. And to realize means you've moved through a few stages. And I see it as stage one is kind of you believe the opposite of the realization, i.e. that you're not lost. Mm-hmm. Um, step two is that you subconsciously become aware that that previous notion is wrong. And then step three is that the truth kind of rises to conscious awareness. Um, so a realization can seem sudden, but it's often something that builds. And the most common problem I see is that writers rush realizations. That's yeah. really interesting, that thing about rushing, because it might be that I think I wonder if sometimes it's because the author's so invested in the story that it seems like like in their head, the foundations have been built because they're in that writer's head. They know those characters intimately. They know their backstories and they know where the story's going. But the reader's coming to it fresh. So that sudden realisation really jars with the reader. It just doesn't quite add up. Yeah, that's it for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's really tricky to look at your own work over and over again as you're revising and then to keep in mind how someone reading for the first time is perceiving it right yeah Mm. and they don't and and the thing about the realizations is that and i'm guilty of this too especially in early drafts is you don't allow time for the realization to sort of bubble up from the subconscious to conscious awareness for the character yeah yeah Yeah. so is that a sort of a that's a pacing thing as well about how information is released to the reader as well. I don't work with fiction, but that, it seems to me it's like how yeah. and when you, you you release that information to the reader or allow them to work out these realizations. It has to be done in a in a way that feel feels logical, as you were saying before, and and it isn't a sudden 
an about turn for somebody to suddenly um, change their position on something or come to a realization. Yeah, definitely. Tim, can mm-hmm. I ask you something? I mean, um, does that does that sort of factor into outlining? Because I, I was just listening to something the other day, and the author was talking about their outlining pro it was a very famous author it's like someone like james patterson or something and he was talking about the the really detailed outlining i mean that's not everybody's mm. approach some people pants it but but he he does really deep outlining and he was talking about this sort of process of making you know actually sort of working at that revision stage to make sure even before he starts crafting the sentences to make sure that 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 rushing doesn't happen that the foundations are in place and that the reveal the big reveal is paced and or structured so that it's it works for the reader is i mean do you do you feel that 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 that's therefore more likely to be a problem that's going to arise for writers who don't outline or oh that's a good question yeah i mm-hmm. i don't know the i mean i do see it it's def there is definitely a, an issue here with the sort of larger story just conceptually sometimes mm. um the thing about like pantsing the the you know doing the seat of you see your pants approach and mm. just sort of feeling out the story sometimes that has better believability and plausibility because you're so in the scene and the next scene is just dependent on what came before it and you're open to kind of anything. Whereas the plotters sometimes figure, well, no, I I need to reach this plot point. And so here it is and I'm going to force it in, but it doesn't necessarily feel organic or, or earned. But I can see it. I mean, it's a it's a challenge. There's a challenge for both methods. Okay. I think. Okay. <laughs> and in fact, I mean, I think the the next problem I see often is with plot turns. So it's mm-hmm. that more sorry conceptual level. Um, and by this, I just mean when there's a surprising turn of events. Um, you know, if we have like a problem arise all of a sudden, there's usually no there's no issue with that. Like a problem can come up out of nowhere, and it can just be bad luck. Um, for whatever reason, bad luck is totally plausible, whereas good luck is is a little less. <laughs> That's true, actually. Yeah. 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 But if a story turns on um, character decision or discovery of new information, I often end up scrutinizing whether that decision or discovery is earned. Mm-hmm. So one example. Mm, right. um, Here's a pretty common challenge that I see. Let's say you're writing a a short story or a scene, and this is about Tom and his son Noah. And Noah's 11, and when he turns 12, Tom is going to take him on a a trip for a hunting or fishing trip or something. But then on the eve of his son's birthday, Tom decides not to take him. And in the morning, Noah wakes up excited to go, but Tom tells him no. And that's kind of our skeletal plot of the story, right? And maybe you mm-hmm. discover that through pantsing it or, or planning it out ahead of time. Now, if, we, if we're going to tell the story from Tom's point of view, we need to know why he decided not to take Noah on the trip. Yep. And, yeah. and that's, that's what I'm talking about here is like the whole point, the whole plot turns on this character decision not to go. And that decision can't be random. Yep. Mm-hmm. If we're to tell it, it's, it's, it would be different if we were to tell it from Noah's point of view, because then it's it's not a decision, it's a problem, right? Yeah. He doesn't yeah. understand why his dad decided this. It just, that's the new problem for him. But if we're telling from Tom's point of view, it's sort of obligatory that we know why he made that decision. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah. I, that randomness then is a bit like the, the Jeep in Jurassic Park turning up. But in this case, now we're actually we're deeper in the character's head. So it can't be too convenient. Is that yeah. right? It's too, maybe feels a bit too contrived. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's very much the case when it comes to discoveries, too. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to watch out for convenient or, or contrived discoveries. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm reading the third Harry Potter book to my daughter right now, and oh, we're in that yeah. scene where Harry discovers the truth about Peter Pettigrew. Um, right. And I don't think yeah. this will spoil anything for anyone who... <laughs> Anyone left who hasn't read it? But... Is there anyone left? I don't know. Just Tim's daughter. Yes. Just my daughter, right? <laughs> but there's so in that scene, so much hinges on. There's so much setup necessary for that scene. We need mm-hmm. to know information about Ron's pet rat and Sirius Black's entire backstory, and Lupin's relationship with Harry's dad and other friends, and then the Potter's secret keeper. And Voldemort and Hermione's cat Crookshanks. It's really, really elaborate. Yeah. Mm. And, the, and the scene is appropriately stretched out to sort of give us all of that. But I think any misstep there in the scene could easily have felt contrived. And so when there's a big discovery or, or revelation, that's something you want to think about earning uh, because it really needs kind of proper setup. Yeah. yeah. Because when people go back on it, everything that has come before that point has to fit with it doesn't it because otherwise you just lose credibility with it if you're sort of trying to retrofix something because you didn't set it up properly um it's not it's not going to sit well with the reader Um, otherwise one one thing i sometimes see when that happens with less experienced authors is that you end up with this almost an information dump like you know it's just like (laughs) this Oh my God! You know, I have to make this all work, and it's it's that's like you said, Tim, about making sure you know it, it, that elaboration and and it's stretched out, but it but it needs to be, and then um, yeah. when you've got suddenly a character just kind of like saying, oh, and by the way, it can just turn into awful maiden butler talk, actually, just, just... yeah. Mm-hmm. But for, as a reader, it's it's wonderful when you get that sort of reveal, yeah. and you can yeah. look back and everything you, you see everything differently. Yeah. But in a real in a really good way, it's like, oh, that's what that was all about. And it, it's like you've been let in on an amazing secret that, that was building all the time right in front of you, but you didn't actually know until this happened. And that, that's really skilled plotting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And it's a lot of fun to read. Right? Mm. Yeah. There's, there's one other thing that I want to mention, which is thematic insertions. Um, right. I see these quite a bit where... where say like two characters are on their way to identify a dead body. Uh, Let's say it's the estranged mother of one of them. And Mm -hmm. they have a conversation on the way about horses. And the point of view character thinks long and hard about how horse societies are matriarchal and how mares are sometimes notoriously nasty and competitive. And then we arrive at the morgue or whatever. And that's that. (laughs) Now, it's not that the matriarchal horse parallel is bad. It's just that it, the way it's not finessed well enough. It, the, it's a question of how it's delivered, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I can. De- there's definitely a danger that it can seem just a bit like the author's trying just too hard to to weave in something that's important or interesting to them, but it's really not in step with the moment in the novel. It, yeah. it feels really out of place. Mm. Yeah. And sometimes I, I think it can also it can sound almost like too much like the writer's holding up a signal to say. 
Yeah. I've got an agenda and that can come across even as a bit patronising. But even when it's not, it can still be interruptive because as readers, we're thinking, oh, my God, we're on the way to the morgue to see X as a strange mother. And now we're philosophizing about horse matriarchy. Yeah. You know? <laughs> right. Right. I tell you, I'll just say, Tim, for the record, that um, yeah. I learned something about horses today. I, didn't, I oh, yeah. no idea. <laughs> that this conversation was going to lead to this. So thank you for that. Uh, I don't know what you're going to learn. <laughs> he can come on you're, again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah this, this, uh, it's this obviously symbolic pondering session that's just not the way to do it, right? To deliver this theme. Um, and it, you need to go for something that sort of draws less attention to itself. So for me, some of the biggest ones I see or most common ones I see are dreams. Like people just sort of, insert a dream that the character has that is mm. very thematically you know weighted or mm. um, another one I see often is is like a piece of artwork or a book like the character will be on the way to the morgue to see the mother and on the way like a high school student will drop a book and it'll be Hamlet or Oedipus Rex or <laughs> as I yeah. lay down or you know some book where the mother is horrible right yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's just really clunky, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Shouting at it, yeah, yeah, in your face with it, yeah. So, Tim, if if an author's um, self-editing their latest draft, and maybe this is the first time they've even considered the concept of unearned writing, how would they go about it and, and turn that unearned into earned? Yeah, I mean, can it be fixed at line level or does it require, is it, is it always a case of major restructuring? I guess I'm trying to get a sense of what the stakes are here because it sounds to me like it could be quite drastic. It could, yeah, that's a really good question. I think like a lot of issues in editing, the first step is about identifying what the problem is because some of them are big macro level issues. Mm. Um, if you're J.K. Rowling writing The Prisoner of Azkaban, you might have some very big conceptual things you need to work out in order for that scene about Peter Pettigrew to feel earned. Mm -hmm. But there are other times when, when the earning is really just a matter of, you know, finessing a line or two. And I think one of the things you can do is examine what uh, Dwight Swain calls MR units. The M is motivating stimulus and the R is response. And right. so you look at those, there'll be several of those throughout the scene. The scene kind of moves in those MR units, he says. And when you look at those responses, look at, especially for your main character, um, they can be a little mysterious. It's okay if we don't, you know, fully understand where that's coming from right now. Mm -hmm. But is the reader prepared either right then or in the future to make sense of how that response came about? Okay. So yeah, I find right. that a pretty useful sort of self-editing exercise. Um, is there a um, is the Dwight Swain? Does is there a book or a resource that you would urge readers to go and oh, he dig has a into? book. Yeah, his his book is is it's a little older. It's called Techniques of the Selling Writer or something. Okay, it's not the first title that would have drawn my attention, but it's it's quite good. Though you know he has it's like like many things from sixty to seventy years ago, there's some subtle misogynism throughout it and that sort of thing. So okay. if you can excuse right. some okay. of that, there's some okay. really good advice. We'll but, put it yeah. in the show we'll put it in the show notes anyway, with your caveat. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Tim, we've talked um quite a lot there about fiction, but but what about nonfiction? I know you do work with that as well. Do these issues come into play here too? Yeah. For nonfiction, I think earning is really more about earning assertions. 
Mm-hmm. Um, if you're going to set out to argue, say, that self-care can be detrimental to creativity, well, that's an assertion that doesn't immediately make sense. So you're going to need to kind of walk us up the stairs to that controversial argument. Yeah. Yeah. And and you can kind of think of this less in argument terms and more in explanation, if that's the kind of nonfiction you're writing, mm-hmm. because in order to adequately explain what isn't obvious, we need to see a logical path for arriving at the non-obvious statements, right? Yeah. yeah. So when I'm editing nonfiction, I often talk about an idea flow. How are you moving us from one idea to the next? And are you transitioning well and, and earning the assertions that you are laying out for us? I think that's a really good point. I, I work um, just in nonfiction. And that idea of transitioning um, from one idea to the next, I think it's very easy for nonfiction um, writers to have um, like mm-hmm. um, isolated ideas, <laughs> um, but it's connecting them and moving the reader from, from one to the other in, in a way that's leading them on a journey. And also the whole concept of um, understanding what level of knowledge the reader has at that point um mm. I, I find yeah. that a big issue with non-fiction it's that whole um curse of knowledge there are assumptions made um and um therefore information isn't explained properly or, or given in a in an easily consumable way for the reader um so th- that's what i would take from that i think that, that, that is yeah. such a good point because i think when i'm learning i mean i think about a lot of the the writing craft books that I read, you know, when there are, I've, I've come across somewhere where I've thought, I've later come to understand what the, the writer was talking about. But at the time, it just seemed like this dense information dump. Like there was, there was assumptions made about my knowledge coming to the, mm-hmm. to, to the book yeah. in the first place. And so, and the, the language was wrong and there, there, still, there wasn't that information flow. That's a really, that idea flow. It, mm-hmm. it, did, it didn't take me step through step. There was a, it was just, it was like a chapter on this, a chapter on that. And, and I, I didn't, I didn't sort of, I didn't feel like I was growing into, into the book. Uh, and mm-hmm. so I couldn't, and so I couldn't learn from it um, as effectively as I might've done. It's a right. really good point. Mm-hmm. Tim, you. you've written a bit th- about this, haven't you? Yeah, I have a few articles uh, on my blog about cause and effect and writing character realizations and earning story events. Um, so, yeah, that's I, great. That's great. We'll we'll make sure that um, links to all of these are in the show notes for our uh, listeners to go and delve into in their own time. So now it's time for Editing Bytes. This is our regular feature where we recommend a tool or resource to help you on your writing journey. So Louise, what have you got for us this week? So this is a little tool that a colleague told me about. It's just a dinky little online thing for writers wanting to work out how to capitalise headings in works according to certain style guides. Um, probably a thing I can think, I think a lot of non-fiction writers would prefer but or get mm-hmm. use out of, but I, I see it cropping up in fiction as well sometimes. So, so sometimes people get in a muddle over whether to capitalise things like prepositions and conjunctions and articles in a heading. And there's this tool called Title Case Converter, which does it for you. Um, and you can choose various different style guide preferences to suit, depending on who you're publishing with or whatever. The only thing I'd say is that um, 
people using this need to take care to scroll down the page to get to the result because I missed it the first time and thought it just wasn't working. But it was. <laughs> just hadn't gone down the page far yeah, enough. Yeah. So what, what's yours? What's your bite? Well, this week, my bite is is another podcast. It's called The Illusionist. And in it, um, Helen Zaltzman takes a deep dive into language along with the help of experts, listener questions and words of the day. It's absolutely fascinating. It's full of humour and the episodes run to around the sort of 20, 30 minute mark, which is perfect for a commute or a walk around the block. (laughs) So that's it. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Tim, you've just wowed us with amazing information. Thank you so much. Thank Um, Thank you to everybody for listening. You can rate, review and subscribe to us via Apple Podcasts, Spotify or whichever platform you prefer. And as I said, we've put all the links in the show notes so you can grab everything there. And thank you once again, Tim, for being such a wonderful guest. Thank you, Tim. Bye. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. Bye.